Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Three, two, one, action. All right. Hello, everyone. It is 2020, and Luca and I are on board the International Space Station. We have uh, two video cameras here. Astronaut Dr. Drew Morgan uh, is floating between parachutes and seats. The space he's in is so crammed with stuff that it seems like even his camera is having trouble fitting in directly outside his capsule just a few feet away and also floating around is his crewmate, Luca Parmentano. The two are giving viewers a tour of the International Space Station, the ISS. And then on the other end there is Luca, and he's in the um, the living module, the habitation module of the Soyuz. Go ahead, Luca. Let's give some coordinates. The Earth is that direction. I agree with that, yeah. The ISS is bigger than you might imagine. It's about the size of a six-bedroom house. There are two crew quarters back here on either side. There's a table here. We have built together. We have at, at this, uh, this. Dr. Morgan is now back on Earth after a 272-day stay on the ISS. In some ways, now that I'm back on Earth, it feels like a blur. While I was up there and I was passing my sixth, seventh, eighth month on board, it definitely at times would feel like I have just lived there all my life. The constant work, including more than seven spacewalks, meaning you leave the spacecraft and go out into the void, it sounds exhilarating. But Morgan says parts of the experience actually become kind of mundane. And part of that is, you know, the environment of being enclosed in the same setting all the time around the same people and the routine every day is like Groundhog Day in in many ways. You know, it tends to make it very difficult to distinguish one day from another. Huh. Groundhog Day. Does this bring any bells for anyone else? Any correlation to, I don't know, the past nine months or so here on Earth? The pandemic has cooped a lot of us up in our homes for much of the past year, for about the same amount of time that Dr. Morgan was orbiting Earth. But orbiting Earth is part of a far grander plan to establish a home on the moon. Whether we will go back to the moon is no longer an open question. I mean, not only do I think it could happen, I think it will happen. And this is more than just a visit. The plan is for astronauts to live there. NASA plans to return people to the moon in 2024 and is funding research projects to help design safer lunar homes. Space habitats are going to have to deal with some of the most extreme environments that we could ever imagine. But on top of the technical requirements, researchers are also considering the emotional and psychological needs that people have spending long stretches away from Earth. We can learn a lot from how people work in extreme environments on Earth. They already provide us with a lot of valuable clues about how humans will live and thrive in in space. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, what it takes to live on the moon and make it feel like a home. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) 
Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Making our mark on the moon has been a goal for a long time. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy delivered one of his most famous speeches. It was at Rice University in Texas. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal... The U.S. was in the middle of a space race with the then-Soviet Union, ignited by pre-existing tensions of the Cold War, and the U.S. wanted to be the best and be the first. And with the Apollo 11 lunar landing, we were the first to land humans on the moon, at least. The U.S. went on to make several successful moon landings with the Apollo program. Our last lunar mission began on December 7, 1972, when Apollo 17 launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, carrying three American astronauts. 99, proceeded. Three, two, one, ignition. Right away, Houston. Vector good. Excellent. It's over. I hear you have good pride. The mission broke the record for the longest lunar stay, just over three days. But almost five decades later, we haven't been back. Funding and the political spark fizzled out. We had a few decades where the global focus shifted to improving space stations and conducting research while orbiting in space. Then, in 2005, during the George W. Bush administration, NASA started the Constellation program. This was to be a crewed spaceflight program with the goal of sending humans back to the moon within 15 years. But by 2010, the program was deemed too costly and canceled by the Obama administration. In 2017, the Trump administration showed a renewed interest in space exploration. In December of that year, President Trump signed the Space Policy Directive 1. The directive I'm signing today will refocus America's space program on human exploration and discovery. It marks an important step in returning American astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972 for long-term exploration and use. Last year, NASA announced it would send humans back to the moon in 2024 under its Artemis program. The project plans to build a permanent moon base at the Lunar South Pole with help from commercial and international partners. It's not just the U.S. Internationally, the moon is center stage in the space race again. And this time, there are more players. Right behind me is China's most powerful carrier rocket, the Long March 5. In November, China launched a lunar mission to collect moon rocks, the first sample since the 1970s. Iran, India, and Israel are also ramping up their lunar programs. Okay. Um, if you had headphones... Oh, um, I actually, yeah, I actually have corded ones as well. I spoke with my colleague Lee Camping-Carter about this. She's been reporting on these lunar programs and potential lunar habitats. I'm wondering, you know, it has been 50 years and... Suddenly, the moon is cool again. What have you found about why there's this sudden resurgence in interest in the moon after this decades-long drought, so to speak? 
I think a big part of that is the explosion in sort of privately funded space exploration or space technology. So it's not just government agencies that are doing this, but in fact, one of the main priorities of NASA is to bring in private partners. Two, one. Mission Control has confirmed New Shepard has cleared the tower. Check out that shot from our drone. Ignition, liftoff. Incredible. Tonight, four astronauts lifted off aboard a SpaceX rocket on a historic NASA mission. You have companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX, uh, Richard Branson with Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic, Jeff Bezos has Blue Origin. There's dozens, maybe even hundreds of companies launching satellites or coming up with landing pad technology. You know, it's just this huge ecosystem now. The other draw to return to the moon is its resources. There's precious metals to mine. There's potentially fuel that could be the elements buried in in the lunar soil. But there's also scientific discoveries and learning about the universe that NASA wants to do. Really, a lot of this is about going to Mars. This is, in a big way, a trial run for going to Mars. Because the thinking is that the moon would be like a pit stop. A very expensive and time-consuming pit stop. (laughs) If we are to reach lofty space goals, this pit stop would eventually need to become a permanent base for humans to live and work. But what will it take to do that? Well, a lot. Some of the things we need, obviously air. There's very little atmosphere on the moon. We need water, food. We would need radiation protection. Let's start with water. After decades of hearing that there is no water on the moon, H2O was discovered at the lunar poles about a decade ago. And a recent discovery found even more water. NASA for the first time discovering traces of H2O in sunlit areas of the moon's surface. They've been finding signs of water on the moon since The moon water contains mercury and other nasty elements, though, and its supply is still limited. So we're going to have to figure out where enough water is to survive on the moon. In addition to water and food, people are obviously going to need to breathe air and find a place to live. That's something researchers at Purdue University have been working on. The Purdue team received a $15 million grant from NASA to create technologies needed to make a sustainable presence on the moon. The team is led by Shirley Dyke. I'm a professor of mechanical and civil engineering at Purdue University. Dyke leads the Resilient Extraterrestrial Habitats Institute, RETHI for short. Purdue is one of four universities working on the project together. Dyke's team is doing experiments on structures to determine how to make a habitat withstand the harsh lunar environment. What it's working on is just a concept. Purdue's research is meant to inform NASA's future habitats on the moon and make them safer and more resilient. We're not exclusively considering any one type of material, but we're looking at resilience. We're trying to understand how each of these different types of designs could be resilient to the types of disruptions that are going to occur. You know, we've been dealing with disruptions on the Earth for thousands and thousands of years, right, as a human race. We've been, we've been building um, habitats here, and we've learned a tremendous number of lessons. 
And we've learned a lot of these lessons on Earth. I mean, we have earthquake-resistant high-rises. Houses in flood zones are built on stilts. And desert adobe homes have thick walls and small windows to keep out the heat. But on the moon, there's an added constraint. Nowhere to go if something goes wrong. We can't just say, my house fell down, so I'm going to go live in a tent outside. We don't have that option there. We have to deal with the resources that we have, the structures that we have, and we have to figure out how to make them survivable. The team is playing around with ideas. Professor Dyke says the concept includes dome-shaped structures, and they're considering making them inflatable for easy transport on a spacecraft. Dyke says the shape of the structure is dome-like for a reason. Circles handle pressure better. It's the same reason that airplanes are cylinders and their windows have rounded corners. Dyke says stress from pressure can concentrate at sharp corners and make structures more likely to crack suddenly. And these structures need to be airtight, of course, eventually adding an air circulation system because the moon doesn't have breathable air. And these structures are going to need to be super sturdy because the moon has its own natural disasters. Moonquakes, yes, they're a thing. Moonquakes are not as strong as earthquakes, but they can last for hours at a time, and they apparently happen more frequently. To prepare for these, Purdue is simulating moonquakes and other potential disaster scenarios using a hybrid physical and computer modeling system it created. Here's what it sounds like in the lab. We have to understand how is a moonquake not just going to affect a habitat and the inhabitants from a structural integrity standpoint, but how is it going to affect the contents? How is it going to affect the life support system And in addition to the moonquakes, there are meteor strikes on the moon. There you are, just minding your own business, and suddenly a meteor strikes nearby. They can be strong enough to dent the moon's surface. And even if they don't, meteor strikes can stir up a lot of lunar dust. But Lee Camping-Carter says that lunar dust creates a potential problem. The lunar soil was described to me as confectioner's sugar that's like glass. So it's very sharp, but it's also fluffy and it can get in everything. It can wear equipment down, any kind of habitat. But researchers have found the pesky moon dust could actually help solve the biggest issue scientists are trying to plan for, radiation from the sun. The Earth's atmosphere allows us to breathe And it also protects us from the sun's deadly ultraviolet rays. The moon barely has an atmosphere and no barrier from the sun. Shirley Dyke says the team is thinking it can use the lunar dust called regolith as an insulator. We're focused on dome-shaped habitats that would most likely have a layer of regolith over the top to protect the humans and the equipment from this damaging radiation levels. The regolith could also be used to build structures from scratch. Dyke says other measures, like having crews sleep on the dome's lowest floor, will help reduce radiation exposure too. But the team is still unclear about how to prepare for it entirely. Dyke says the radiation that exists on the moon can't even be replicated safely here on Earth. 
it's impossible or nearly impossible to simulate those types of environments and understand how radiation is going to affect our equipment, is going to affect our habitats and our human bodies. And so those are the types of lessons that we cannot learn until we get there, until we reside on the surface of the moon for a period of time. Some things we're just going to have to learn when we're there. But once we get past survival issues, then what? What about emotional well-being? What happens if you feel bored, anxious, or isolated? Well, researchers are incorporating little details that could help astronauts to feel more at home on the moon. Coming up next, we speak with a psychologist who knows how to mitigate the stresses of living in extreme environments. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. There's survival, right? Food, shelter, oxygen, water. You got to have those things. But how do you create a home in an inhospitable place like the moon? Researchers actually study this. They look to extreme Earth habitats where people are forced to live in isolation for long periods for work or study. Hello, my name is Pedro Quintairo. I am an organizational psychologist, and I currently work as an assistant professor at ISPA in Lisbon, Portugal. ISPA is a university that uh, has specialized in the training of psychologists, biologists, and educators. Quintero's research specializes in teamwork in extreme work environments, like missions to Antarctica or the International Space Station, the ISS. Living in these places is kind of like living on the moon. It's confining, isolated, desolate, too cold to stay outside for even short periods of time. Psychologists study group dynamics to anticipate how we'll act in these kinds of situations. There's one interesting phenomena that happens even when we go to summer camp. Summer camp can be a person's first real extended period away from parents. We can bond quickly with our peers in these circumstances, and some of us are lucky enough to form lasting friendships long after summer's over. Professionals even have a name for this experience. Something called swift trust. Huh, swift trust. So is this strong emotional connection and the trust and the cohesion and the familiarity we feel towards complete strangers that we've met only for three or four days. And this is something that only happens when we are confined in a small space or in a space where we don't have nowhere else to go and also where we are forced to interact over 24 hours with the same people. It's kind of like making a podcast, actually. 
on deadline. <laughs> this happens for a very practical reason. If you're in an extreme environment, confined with a, with a small group and you don't have much resources to survive in a very demanding uh, environment, then the most adaptive thing to do is to quickly connect with other people around you. Kintairo says that experience of family, community, and intimacy can be valuable and even life-saving in extreme situations. But other aspects of extreme environments can have a negative effect on individuals and groups. There are a number of reasons for this. A lot of times people on these research trips are working long periods of time. In Antarctica, for example, it's light all summer and dark all winter. On the moon, light cycles are off completely. A lunar day is a little more than 29 days on Earth. So you get around 14 days of light, followed by 14 days of absolute darkness. Kintairo says this can lead to depression, anxiety, and stress. But just like the buildings on the moon can be made resilient, he says there are ways to make teams more resilient too, and more sustainable. So you really work to build motivation, manage conflict, create trustful relations. Also essential, says Kintairo, routine, exercise, planning, and organization. And then you have behaviors that are more task-oriented, like setting goals, uh, monitoring performance, uh, providing feedback, and then also other behaviors that are more related to planning. And it's by creating these relations with your team members before the mission and with uh, the people that manage the station during the mission that most of the problems get solved. Can you explain why organization and planning beforehand and creating interpersonal relationships, why these things have proven to work? Yes. So I would say one major reason has to do with the perception of control. So when you go to an environment like Antarctica or the International Space Station or any environment that is absolutely new and where we have very few resources to do our work, one of the things that is most common is the lack of control. There's a high degree of unpredictability. Even if you have four contingency plans, there's something else that happens that requires you to come up with a fifth contingency plan. And even if you're a seasoned expeditioner with 10, 12, 15 expeditions, you still find new things you have to deal with. And all of this creates a sense of uncontrol. And what we notice that, first, is that more experienced people accept that lack of control. And when we plan in advance, and then also engaging daily planning, what we are doing is actually building some sort of personal control over the situation, even if we don't have it. So what would that look like on the moon, though? Well, a real connection to your moon crew helps. That's just what astronaut Dr. Drew Morgan describes having on the ISS. Morgan says he missed all his kids' birthdays and family holidays while in space. So he made observing holidays with his fellow crew members a priority. The crew is international, so we celebrated multiple Christmases. We got to share a lot of traditional food. I mean, it takes a lot of forethought to pack the right food to make sure that you have some things for the holidays that will feel special, feel unique. And we made an effort to do that. But it's not really enough to have just a home away from home. Researchers say it's important, especially for space travelers, to have a connection back to Earth. Morgan brought about two to three shoeboxes filled with personal items, like photos of his friends and family, and he says he also took photos in front of the windows of the ISS. 
They called it the cupola. It's a wall of seven windows that give a 360-degree view of the Earth. We could float the picture in front of the window and take a picture of family pictures in that window. And then I could email that to them from the, the ISS. And that was a lot of fun for them to receive that picture, a picture of their family floating in space. So you need a place to live and a crew to collaborate with. But what about creating a community? There are plans to create an entire settlement on the moon, a moon village. What is the idea of the moon village? It's really uh, taking the idea of going to the moon together. That's Georgi Petrov. He's a space architect and works at the architectural firm Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, or SOM for short. The Moon Village is a project the firm is working on, sponsored by the European Space Agency. We're approaching this on several different levels. First of all, we started to look at the master plan, so sort of urban planning ideas of how would you set up a village that would grow, an infrastructure that would grow. The computer mock-ups of SOM's Moon Village concept look like a mini city of silos. Modular, oblong structures that are about four stories tall and rounded at the top. Petrov says they would be interconnected and could be linked and expanded as needed. One for storage, one to grow food, one for exercise, hygiene, and for emergency activity. In the concept, the whole village would be perched on the rim of the Shackleton Crater on the moon. That's in the South Polar region on what's known as the Peaks of Eternal Light. Petrov says it's an ideal location. So over the last 20 years, we have gotten a lot of evidence from many different international missions that in the permanently shaded regions around the two poles of the moon, where the sun hasn't shone for billions of years, there is a lot of water that has fallen there from outer space and is accumulated and is stored. And we have a pretty good idea that it is there. And so right next to it, There's several peaks that are really high. So all the low points are permanently shaded and store water. And all the high points are almost entirely bathed in sunlight, where you could harvest sunlight for energy and you have water in the shaded regions. So it seems to be both from a scientific point of view, because this is water that's been frozen for billions of years, and it's sort of a record of the history of the solar system. And also from a habitat point of view, water is sort of the main essential ingredient that we need to survive. In addition to nearby water and sunlight, the living quarters would be surrounded by fields of solar panels and other life support systems. And just like the International Space Station, Petrov says the infrastructure of the Moon Village wouldn't belong to one entity, but could be used by numerous governments and private companies. By sharing a lot of this common infrastructure, it could open the moon to a lot more players that could go there together. So both from technological point of view, but also from philosophical, you know, the spirit point of view. Even though they look kind of like silos, Petrov says, just like buildings on Earth, one of the most important features of these structures will be the windows. And of course, the view those windows provide. And we have this sort of image of that around the windows, you could have some green. And so when you're standing in the habitat, you're looking out through the green, out to the gray moon, and always having the earth there in the sky, this beautiful blue gem sitting there. 
we're trying to introduce a little bit of poetry into the master planning, into the idea of the moon village. So it's, it's not all engineering and surviving, but it's also living. SOM's efforts with the European Space Agency are ongoing. NASA expects to send humans back to the moon in 2024. Researchers tell us humans will be living on the moon by the 2030s. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is our deputy editor and reporter for this episode. Additional reporting for this episode was done by our producer, Casey Georgie. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Sound design for this episode is by Sarah Gibble-Laska. Special thanks this week to the European Space Agency and to NASA for permission to use their audio and to astronaut Dr. Drew Morgan. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.